Well, we're in part four, the last of our series on our calling and the conflict that comes from our calling as children of God's kingdom. And you'll recall where a lot of this started when we go back is really back in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as he explains to his disciples what this new life is all about that he has given them, that he has brought them into, and that he is preparing them for. And this is our life as children of God, citizens of heaven, and as part of his church. What is this life all about? Well, in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus concludes the Beatitudes with the following God-breathed words. He says to his disciples, those who have repented and turned and left everything to follow him, he says to them, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, as children of God, as citizens of heaven, this is our calling. According to Jesus... This is who we are. Without light, there's only darkness and death. And in this world of very real darkness, Christ alone is the light of the world. And by God's grace, through repentance and faith in Him alone, together, we are now part of His light. And our kingdom calling is to shine with Jesus, to shine like Jesus, and to shine for Jesus. And to do so together, not separately, in every aspect of our lives, in our relationships, in our homes, our families, in our places of work, with our neighbors, in our neighborhoods. And yes, especially as we gather together as the family of God. And we do so, brothers and sisters, in the same way Christ came for us. He didn't come because it was a great deal for Him. He didn't come because it was a great Airbnb in Nazareth. He came, brothers and sisters, and left everything, and He did so for us. And so as we shine our lights, it's not for our personal benefit per se. It's not for a better life for us. We shine as lights for a world that is lost and dying in its sin so that they might have an opportunity to see God's light. So that our neighbors or our co-workers may have an opportunity to see what the grace of God is that forgives sinners. So that the people who we interact with on our summer vacations might be able to hear and see and perhaps for the first time become aware that there is a way of living that gives life rather than bringing death. And so it raises the question for us, do our coworkers, do our neighbors, do our children, do our spouses, do our families see Christ's light in us? 
And over the past weeks we've seen this is why we walk by faith in the Spirit and not in the flesh. This is why we abide in Christ. This is why we go and we don't stay. And the Lord takes us many times to uncomfortable places that we might not choose ourselves. In order to bear witness in our words and our deeds that Christ is indeed risen. He is indeed alive. He is not dead. He is indeed the crucified and risen Lord of all. And this morning as we come to a close in this series, as we think about what it means to shine and to live the light, I want us to consider one last aspect of living Christ's light. And it's Christ's call and command for his people, for his disciples, to glorify God and very specifically to glorify his grace, his unmerited favor in our lives. To do so together by walking in God's good works. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start reading at verse 15. And our focus this morning is going to be Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now this is the word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now you'll recall a few years ago, pre-COVID, we walked through this passage very slowly. So this morning we're going to go a little quicker and our focus and emphasis is going to be on our calling, which comes at the end of this passage. What is our calling? And what do good works have to do with our calling? Now, regarding this idea of good works that we hear a lot about. And in fact, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul talks about, actually 9 and 10, two different types of works. Works that we can't boast in the works of God and then the works that we do boast in. And certainly in the church, there's this confusion. Aren't we supposed to be doing good works? And things can go typically in churches from two extremes. Christ died for my sins. I live by grace. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to give anything. I just have to show up. I'm doing everybody a favor by being here. Jesus has done it all. And it's settled. There's that extreme. And then there's the other extreme where we can never do enough good works. We've got to give more. We've got to serve more. We've got to be in this ministry. We've got to be in that ministry. And brothers and sisters, both sides of those are a distortion of the gospel. And both of those ways of thinking, I do nothing and I can never do enough to please God, are really expressions, as we've seen in the past, of our flesh, our sinful and selfish ambition. Okay? In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear about the good works he's talking about. Good works, the good works that he's talking about are God's good works. And they're an essential part of a believer's calling. But this is because they are the fruit of God's grace in our lives. And they are the fruit of our salvation. They are not the root. And that's the backwards way all the world religions function. It's the backwards way the world functions. You play as you pay. You kill what you eat. Unless you earn it, you are not going to enjoy the benefit. There is no fruit unless you put your sweat and backbone and it's about you. And then you bring your fruit to God and then God blesses you. And we have it backwards. From the Garden of Eden onwards, God's framework is because I love you, because I pour my grace into your life, because I draw you close to me, because of those things, naturally works of love, works of kindness, works of mercy, works of forgiveness, works of grace, these naturally flow out of you because you're my child and you're overflowing with my love in Christ for you. And so very much our lives are to be filled with good works as a Christian, God's works. And if they're not present, and so we have to qualify what those good works are because it's not building a hospital per se. It's not serving in short-term missions. It's not being a pastor. All right? But our lives are to be filled with the good works of God's grace in our lives. And if those are not present, we need to, what's the root? And within that context, like Jesus, our lives are to be filled 
and our church is to be filled with his good works. We are like Jesus to be laboring and giving by faith all we are and all we have for the sake of the gospel, according to God's word. Because that is, brothers and sisters, our calling. And that is what sets us apart. And this is both the testimony and the exhortation of the Apostle Paul. This is his life. And this is what he is writing in this epistle to the Ephesians, written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written around 60 to 62 AD, along with Philippians and Philemon and Colossians. With the Apostle Paul, he's writing as a prisoner for the Lord. He's writing as an ambassador in chains for the gospel in Rome. He's writing as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And it's worth noting as we read through this epistle, and I would encourage you with these epistles to read through them. It'll take you 20 minutes to a half hour in this divine message from Christ to his faithful saints. The word grace appears no less than 12 times. The word glory appears no less than eight times. But most of all, the word love and the key phrase, in Christ or in Him, both of those appear 15 times. And it's in this way Jesus lets us know what this epistle is about. And in this way, He lets us know what our calling is about. It's about the glory of God, not our glory. It's about His grace, not our works per se. It's about His love and our union with Christ. And when we put that together and you read through this epistle, the Apostle Paul is writing about the way in which we glorify God's grace. The way in which we shine brightly, and as we shine brightly, people are able to recognize and catch a glimpse at the infinite goodness and grace and mercy and love of our God. How? Very specifically, through our union and through our unity with Christ. It's not through, brothers and sisters, our union and unity in what we enjoy. It's not through our union and unity in the activities that we share together. It is not our union and unity in our style of worship or the color of our skin. If those are the things that unite us, brothers and sisters, then it's about us and our unity will only last as long as we are in that program together, we are in that ministry together, and we share the same sports teams together. And once those things go, that unity is gone. The way in which we glorify God's grace, His kindness, and His love in our life is to our union and our unity in Christ. He's the one and he is the basis with which we share something wonderful in common that this world does not have and that sets us apart. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the church is. This is, brothers and sisters, what we're supposed to be. As we consider that for a minute, I hope 
it draws you to a place to consider the blessing and the richness and the privilege of what we have in Christ. And this is going to be our summer sermon series for July and for June and maybe just a little bit of August. This is going to be our focus, growing in our union and our unity in Christ. But in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul explains to us what exactly this unity in Christ is. And in chapters 4 through 6, he explains how we're to live out this union and this unity in Christ. And in the portion that we're focusing on this morning, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the Apostle Paul calls the saints in Ephesus and us to consider and appreciate three foundational gospel truths about our union and our unity in Christ. And it's these three foundational gospel truths that yield true good works in your life and mine. Good works that glorify God's love and grace. And these three gospel truths are what we are in Christ, what we were in Christ, and what God has done in our lives because of Christ. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Christ calls us to appreciate what we were without Him. Christ calls us to appreciate what we were without Him. And this is verses 1 through 3. For those of us who have grown up in the church, it can become really easy to forget what we were without Christ. And sadly, the lines get blurred. And our characteristics are the places we go, the songs we sing, and the bubbles we live in. And so it's a kindness as the Apostle Paul and Christ through him reminds us what we were before Christ came into our lives. And no matter how hard we try to look good with fame and fortune and religious activity, according to God's word, without Christ, we were, we are, and we always will be dead. Dead people with dead desires walking in dead works. And according to God's word, death is more than just this cessation of biological function. Death is both a spiritual and physical condition. And it's a consequence of our sinfulness and our separation from the life and love of God. And according to the Old Testament and according to the law, to be dead was not just to be without life. To be dead is to be unclean spiritually and physically. Rotting corpses, spreading disease and decay, and defiling the living. And as a result, dead corpses needed to be destroyed urgently. You either burn or you bury and you do so as fast as you can. And in the Old Testament, those people who touched something dead were considered to be unclean and they were actually cut off from fellowship and from worship until they were cleaned according to God's word and by God's provision. So if you had to bury a relative, or if by accident, or you were hunting, or you were involved with touching something that was dead, anything that was dead, you were not able to participate in the Passover feast. You were not given access to God or the people of God until God had cleaned you. And God was showing his people through this that sin and death don't simply 
end our lives. We have this feeling, this view, that when our lives end, it's all over. But God was showing His people sin and death. They have a place and an ongoing role and impact. Not only in our lives, but the lives of the people we love and those around us. Sin and death make us agents of impurity and destruction. Defiling and destroying ourselves and everything we do and touch. And this is the condition that the Apostle Paul is describing in verse 1 and 2 when he writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's showing us that without Christ, our desires, our deeds, the very direction of our life, the sum total of our life is dominated and directed by our trespasses and sins. The idea of trespass is this idea of a willful and intentional rebellion and resistance to the infinitely holy life and love of God. Now, if you've ever spent any time with a rotting corpse, there is movement. There is activity. There is direction. And a buddy of mine, He was taking care of apartments and came in to one of the apartments where they hadn't heard from the person who was renting. Only to discover that this person had passed away and had been there for some time. And he explained to me in detail the horror of what he saw. Things bubbling, things moving. There is movement, there is activity, there is direction. It's just not good movement. It's not good activity. It's not good direction. It's rotting and decay. And it is moving in one direction and one direction alone. And in verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul points out the three prime movers of this direction in our lives without Christ. And all three move in one direction. And it is not good. Verse 2, the world. Number one, the second one, the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. Number three, verse three, the passions of our sinful flesh, the world, Satan, our lustful and sinful desires. This is what moves our life without Christ. This is what dominates and enslaves our life without Christ. This is what brings continual decay and defiling not only us, but everything we do and everything we say and everything we touch. No matter how many Sunday school classes we teach, no matter how much money we give to the church, no matter how much activity and how many songs we lead or sermons we preach, without Christ, it is all stinking it up. And sometimes we don't see it and feel the best remedy is to cover it all with cologne or perfume. But from inside and out, without Christ, this is what ruled and led our lives. This is what we willfully followed, physically and spiritually. And brothers and sisters, we see this so often, do we not? In the church today, there are religious leaders who are successful. Churches are filled. 
Things go big for six years and everybody doesn't say anything because they say, look at the fruit, look at the fruit. They're just packing houses. They're doing great things for the kingdom. And then we find there's an infidelity or then we find that there's something, an embezzlement or something ugly that comes. And then what happens to all that work? All that stuff that we claimed that was fruit. It all looks bad. It's all a discouragement. And the people who come out, who were part of the good times, start to look at everything through darkness. And in verse 3, the Apostle Paul, he sums it all up and he says, look, this is what we all were. Not just some of you. Not just those who cleaned up nicely. Not just those of you who have a great biblical career. We were all this. And he sums it up of what we are in God's eyes, not the world's eyes. The world may be fooled, brothers and sisters. We may be fooled, brothers and sisters. But God is not fooled. And in God's eyes, we were by nature, every ounce of us, inside out, children of wrath. Dead men walking, guilty, condemned, damned, and destined for eternal separation from God. Now, brothers and sisters, how much joy, how much compassion, how much forgiveness, how much mercy would we show one another, unbelievers, the difficult people in our lives, if we actually believe that this was true about ourselves. That this is who we were. The person who's ugly to us, I was uglier. The person who's unkind to me, I was worse. The person who cheated from me, I cheated more. As the Apostle Paul said, I was the chief among sinners. And brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of the gospel. What we basically cringe from when it comes into our lives. Part of Christ's love in the beginning is to show us with his light what we truly are before God. Not so that we can stay there, but so that we can begin to appreciate the work that he is doing and wants to do in our lives. How much would we be overwhelmed and appreciative about what God has done in Christ? And that brings us to our second point this morning. Christ calls us to appreciate who God is and what he has done in him. Christ calls us to to appreciate who God is and what God has done in his son, Jesus Christ. What Christ calls us to believe, what he calls us to appreciate, what he calls us to enjoy, what he calls us to celebrate, what he calls us to share with one another, it begins with two radical words. But God. And but God reminds us of the good news that God is not like us. He is not a creature. He is the creator. He is not like us. He is not like the devil. He is not like the world. But God being eternally independent by nature. But God being rich. It means he is infinitely overflowing and able to fill and able to give and it's no loss to him. But God being rich in what? Mercy. And what is mercy, brothers and sisters? Holy, compassionate, forgiving, faithful, 
sacrificial love, like the Good Samaritan, and ultimately like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But God, being rich in mercy, this is who our God is, brothers and sisters. Infinitely rich. And infinitely willing to give a love that this world does not have. Because of, on account of, what? How we looked on Sunday? How many services we preached at? How much Bible we knew? Because of, on account of, the great love of Him, literally. Or His great love. And this love, brothers and sisters, is not small. It's not insignificant. It's not a powerless feeling. It is the great love of God. Because of the great love with which He loved us. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, who possesses the motivation and power to make a people who are dead in their trespasses alive together with Christ? Who possesses the motivation and power to forgive and remove the sin of the worst of sinners? Past, present, and future. Who possesses the motivation and power to pay the penalty for our sin? Life for life. Who possesses the motivation and power to right every wrong or offense that we have ever committed? And to turn what is ugly in our lives and to make it a blessing to others? Who possesses the power and the desire to take the offenses that we have received from others? Victims of abuse. Those who have been harmed. Not their sin, but receiving the sin of others. Who possesses the power and the ability to take those offenses and turn them into something beautiful and good that blesses others? Who possesses the motivation and power to set us free from Satan, the world, and the flesh and to reverse the curse of sin and death in us? There is only one. It is the eternal and holy creator of the universe. And there is only one way he does this. By uniting us together with the life of his holy and beloved son, Jesus Christ. There is only one who is able to do this, brothers and sisters. It's not you and it's not me. It's not John MacArthur and it's not John Piper. And according to verses 1 through 3, there is nothing in us, not our education, not our church service, not our Bible knowledge, that makes us worthy of this or makes us able to do any of this. So, brothers and sisters, there is no room in the church for personal saviors other than Jesus. We can't save our wives. We can't save our children. We can't save our friends. But we do know the one who is able to save our children. Who is able to save our spouses. Who is able to save the worst of neighbors and co-workers. 
because he is rich in mercy, because of his great love, because he is able to take what is dead and make that person alive, not just alive on their own, but together with his son, Jesus Christ. And that is why he says, by grace, God's undeserved kindness and favor, you have been saved. Growing up in Toronto, one of my close friends and close friends of the family, I've shared this with you before, he got a flu-like illness and suddenly his kidneys shut down. And during high school and the early years of college, he was perpetually in and out of the hospital, wasn't able to finish and get a college education. And when I went to visit him in the hospital, the preeminent children's hospital in Canada, the Young man who I'd known, play football, play rough, play hard, big heart, was just lying in a bed incapacitated, barely able to stand up. This became his life for years. And then his mother gave him one of her kidneys. And there was a radical change in his life. Why? He was no longer dependent on his dead kidney. He had this entirely new life, working a job, active in church, all of those different things, a completely different new life. But it was a life, brothers and sisters, that was entirely dependent on the kidney his mother had given him. And what exactly did my friend do to deserve or earn this new life that he had? He happened to have the right mother. It was because of his mother's love. It was nothing that he had done. By grace, you have been saved. You have been saved. Passive. You didn't do anything for it. And the good news of God's salvation is more than just giving you a kidney or a heart. When God, by his spirit and his word, unites a sinner together with Christ, he doesn't just give you a part of Christ. He gives you all of Christ, the entire life of Christ. Yes, the past and the crucifixion and a suffering from the world that comes with that, but also the resurrection, the honor, the glory, the goodness, where all this is going. And so the Apostle Paul goes on and says, He raised us up with Him and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he's talking about the glory, the privilege, the love, the fullness, the completeness of the Father's love. Brothers and sisters, when we struggle as believers in this life and this world, and inevitably we, we will because we share the life of Christ, it is not the totality of God's plan. Though Satan comes and wants you to believe that. He wants you to think your suffering now is never going to end. You've got the short end of the stick. But we don't see the fullness of the plan because God's love for us does not end at the cross, brothers and sisters. His love for us and the intent is to raise us up and to seed us together, you and I both, not individually, together. To appreciate and enjoy the fullness of His mercy and love in Christ. And so he cleans us up together with Christ. He lifts us up together with Christ. And he does so to draw us near together. How? By uniting us together with his beloved son. Brothers and sisters, this is who our God is. Rich in mercy, willing to love the unlovable, powerful and able to take what is ugly and what is dead and what is dark 
and to remove it completely and completely transform us into what is beautiful and good and to lift us up and to place us in a place of privilege and authority, not alone, but together with His Son. Brothers and sisters, this is what the church is. This is what we are. And it is all His work of grace. It is not ours. And this brings us to our final point this morning. Christ calls us to appreciate what we are now in Christ. Christ calls us to appreciate what we are in Christ together. Brothers and sisters, how easy is it for us to forget what we are in Christ? And everything in this world, from our entertainment to our sports to our work, every aspect, The world, the flesh, the devil is all geared and working to make you forget who you are in Christ. But in verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul reminds the saints what we no longer are. We are no longer dead slaves of this world. We are no longer slaves to the devil. We are no longer slaves to the flesh. They may knock, they may pressure, they may try and coerce, but they no longer rule over us, and we no longer have to answer to them. We are no longer children of wrath. Verses 7 through 10, in Christ we are now children of His grace. And in verse 10, he points out, we are God's workmanship. We are his new creation in Christ. And in verses 7 through 10, the apostle draws a direct connection between what God has done in Christ, what we are now in Christ together, not individually, and our new calling and our new purpose. You cannot appreciate your calling and purpose unless you begin to appreciate what you were before Christ and what God has done in your life because of Christ. And in verse 7, he begins by explaining God's purpose. Why did God save you? Why did God save me? Why did he remake us? Why did he raise us up together with Christ? Because we were good looking? Because he loved Asians? Because he thought, I need more college and single age people in the church? Because I need a young church who's able to do a lot, who's got lots of zeal and energy and ability? says in verse 7, So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. At its best, when parents adopt a child or they bring a child in through foster care, at its best, and in this fallen world, it doesn't happen very often, but at its best, when parents make that decision to adopt a child or bring a child in through foster care, at its best, the heart and desire is to share with that child and to give that child a love and a care and a kindness that that child would never have access to until that child is brought into that family. God's purpose for his adoption of his children in Christ. That's what the church is. All of us. One way into the church. Adoption. Through the power of the spirit and the word. God's purpose in adopting his children. Is to show us. 
how much He loves us and to show us the magnitude of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Our purpose and calling together, brothers and sisters, as redeemed sinners, as adopted children of God, is to bear witness and to be a testimony not of how well I sing, how well I preach, how many hours I put into the church. It's a testimony of God's amazing grace, of His mercy that comes and is experienced in one place and one place alone. Non-negotiable in Christ. And that means, brothers and sisters, repentance and faith in Christ. There's no bypassing. There's no moving to the front of the line like Marcion by giving a huge amount to the church so that you can teach what you want to teach and bend the rules and do what you want to do. And this is what the Apostle Paul explains in verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Your confidence, faith, your conviction... It's not in you and what you bring to the table. It's entirely in Christ and what God has done in Christ. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Brothers and sisters, the more the church is about us, our gifts, our talents, our preferences, our accomplishments, our programs, the less it is about God and the gospel. And God's amazing gift and His work of love and grace, all that He has done in us together in Christ, starts to get put further and further away. And when we go down that path, brothers and sisters, and Satan yanks at our cord, and he discourages us because we don't see A, B, C, D, and E in our children, our homes, our marriages, because so often, and this is me included, we're more of the culture than we care to admit, and we're measuring by the world's benchmarks. Did my kids get breastfed for X number of months? Do they go to sleep at this particular time? Did they make it into college? Did they go to a good school? Do they participate in youth group? Were they well behaved in every children's class? You look at all of those different things, all of those standards of the flesh, and we see as we focus on those things, so performance-oriented, Our testimony becomes a lie about who and what we truly are. His workmanship, not ours. Children of grace and not of the works of men. And it becomes a lie about who God is. He loves me if I'm a great preacher. He loves me if my children perform well in Sunday school. He loves me if What's the good news, brothers and sisters? That sets us free. That takes the weight and the yoke of legalism off our backs in the flesh. And that sets us and enables us to be free to serve the Lord joyfully. In good times, but in hard times too. To joyfully come when things are difficult in the marriage. Things are difficult in the home. And I'm saying I'm not measuring by my performance. My God is still good. My God is still rich in mercy. My God is still rich in love. The cross still stands. It is not over. He's going to finish this. And I sit, though the world sees differently, with Christ at His table. 
For we are his workmanship, which no one can undo, brothers and sisters, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. F.F. Bruce says, Throughout time and in eternity, the church, the society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. So what does it mean, brothers and sisters, to walk in his good works and not ours? Could I have my final slide? As you read through Ephesians, it all comes down to this. What's God's greatest work? It's our union with Christ. This is the cross. This is the resurrection. This is our forgiveness and sins. It's to unite all things in Christ. And God's good work, which no man can accomplish, is our union and our unity together in Christ. That's the church, brothers and sisters. And so as you walk through Ephesians, you see how he calls us to no longer walk in our trespasses and sins and the influence of the world and the influence of Satan and the desires of our flesh. His call is for us to walk in his love, to walk in this union with Christ. So instead of walking as children of wrath, we are chosen and adopted as his sons. We are to walk as sons. You're not street kids anymore. We are to walk as children of the Most High God, with honor, with privilege, with dignity, and responsibility. As those who are forgiven and redeemed, we are to walk in His holiness. Those of you who bake bread, you know there's flour everywhere. And I'll get looks. Again? I'll get looks. I just cleaned the table. Right? Because that table that just got cleaned suddenly is all covered with flour again. Brothers and sisters, when God comes in and cleans up our lives, He does so and puts everything at our disposal so that we can, t- can continue to walk in a clean vessel. Made alive with His Spirit. This is what God has worked in our lives. So we're to walk by His Spirit in newness of life. We're not to walk in the flesh. What God has done, His work, He's united us together by His love and truth. So we're supposed to walk and we're to grow together in Christ's love and His truth. And so when you go through chapters 4 and 6, in our marriages, speak the truth in love. In the church, Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. How? Speaking the truth in love. As we talk to one another. Don't say things that are unedifying. But only say things that are going to exalt and lift up and impart grace. We're built together with Christ. So we're called to stand firm and stand strong together in Christ. And you see every aspect of our lives. Our marriages. Our families. Our workplace, they are all to bear witness to the grace of God in our lives, not us. How? By walking in His love, by imitating Him, by talking like Him, by speaking like Him, by doing things, all of which we're able to do because we're united with Christ. And finally, united by His gospel, we're called to boldly proclaim His gospel in word and deed. 
P.T. O'Brien says, in the light of God's gracious saving work, believers point men and women from themselves to the one to whom they owe their salvation. Only in the coming ages will this work be fully seen for what it is. Brothers and sisters, we have a great calling. God has done a great work in our lives. I had an employee who worked for me. Her husband was convicted of a crime. He was incarcerated. She helped pay his legal fees. She went to visit him in prison. She did everything to support and care for her husband while still supporting their family. And when this man, which she waited for faithfully, got out of jail and came home, She was there to provide a roof over his head, to provide everything that he needed and that family. And understandably, as he got out, that transition from being alone in a prison cell to being in a small home with many children proved to be a little overwhelming. So after dinner on one of the first evenings, out of the corner of her eye, she saw him slinking out the door. He goes, oh, where are you going? Oh, I'm just going to meet up with some friends. Oh, you know, this is a family, she said out loud. And she's reminding him, look, because this is how we function a little bit. Come out and God saves us. Come into the household of God. But it feels uncomfortable and it feels different. And so we want to slink out and go back and do the things we used to do and roll with the people we used to roll because it feels overwhelming. And we fail to see, hey, this is a family. And we also fail to see that the best is yet to come and that God has to bring us through some things that are uncomfortable for us to see the fullness of what this is all about, that he has loved us, he has waited for us, he has cared for us while we were in prison, and he has brought us out, and he has brought us into his family, and he's got a purpose and plan for us to see us be the recipients of his love and his kindness and his grace. And I'm pleased to say, years after, this employee texted me and said, he's, I asked, how's he doing? She said, he's doing well, he's become a good grandfather. Okay, that, brothers and sisters, if we're willing to trust in the Lord, if we're willing to give Him a chance, if we're willing to see that His ways are better than ours, brothers and sisters, we have yet to see the greatness and the goodness of His workmanship in our lives and in our church. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a God, what a Savior, and what a salvation. Would you help us, O Lord, to leave behind our past and instead to celebrate the goodness and greatness of your love by enjoying it, by living it, and by walking in and with you. In your name we pray, amen.